Looking for a fun way to win up to 25 times your money this basketball season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of stats, and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and injury insurance on your picks are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million players who have already signed up. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com slash get100 and use code get100. That's code get100 at prizepicks.com slash get100 for a first deposit matchup to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy. This is the American Veteran Show. Proud to finally say these two words. Welcome home. Dedicated to those who have worn the uniform. Tremendous national asset. Dedicated to our active duty men and women. They came not as conquerors, but as liberators. Dedicated to presenting issues, topics, and interviews highlighting their commitment to our country. They are definitely tough, smart cookies. Online at AmericanVeteranShow.com. Here's Stephan Tubbs. Welcome to this week's edition of the American Veteran Show, coming to you from tiny Victor, Colorado. Founded in 1894, as I trudge through snow and some ice here, it's basically a deserted ghost town. Of course, this being just after the holiday season, this is not their prime tourist season. This week on the American Veteran Show, happy to come to you here from really the heart of Colorado gold country. There's a huge mural on 3rd Street at the corner of 3rd and Victor. Victor, and it's called the Roll of Honor. It honors all of those Teller County residents who served in World War II. One thing that's for certain, this place was incredibly busy about 120 years ago. And as I stand here at about 10,000 plus feet in elevation, you can feel it in your chest. You may be able to tell it in my voice. One of the biggest residents ever to come out of Victor, Colorado, in fact, its most famous resident, was the journalist and the world traveler, Lowell Thomas. Now, he wasn't born here, but uh, he was a child here. He would go on to become a reporter here in Victor, went to high school here, and then he went on, of course, to introduce the world to Lawrence of Arabia. What, in your opinion, do these people hope to gain from this war? They hope to gain their freedom. As I walk down this sidewalk, which has not been shoveled, I can tell you more about Lowell Thomas. Of course, he went on to do so many dozens and dozens of newsreels back in the day, informing the world of global activity. He would become one of the most famous newscasters anywhere in the world. He would rub elbows with the likes of FDR. He knew the prime minister. He knew Winston Churchill. And some of his work stands out, goes down in the book, at least for me, into the Broadcasting Hall of Fame. The transport of German troops by sea, which the Allies could impede but could not stop. The British Navy unable to control the narrow, perilous straits of the Skagerrak. 
As we continue from Victor, I'm no expert, but I can tell you from what I've read up on this fascinating portion of Colorado, this was the place to be, not only in our state, but basically in the United States over a 30 to 40 year period. They took out of the hills here the equivalent in today's dollars of about $20 billion in gold. Now, you may be asking yourself, well, what does this have to do with veterans and the American Veteran Show? So here's what I found out. The population here was in the tens of thousands. You can still see the remnants of the old mining equipment, the pieces of wood that's just amazing that they've actually withstood the weather, the elements here. You can also see the marks of modern-day, relatively modern-day mining here in this portion of Colorado. Now, this is near Cripple Creek. It's about 45 minutes south-southeast of Woodland Park, which, of course, is just west of Colorado Springs. But here's where the story involves veterans and specifically World War One when the country needed veterans and the call-up for the Great War of course many of the young men here who were not the rich and not the famous they went on to enlist in World War One the ironic part was that Lowell Thomas he would leave about the same time and he would end up being a correspondent and again introducing the world to Lawrence the same thing basically happened after World War one. The population here in Victor increased, and then with World War II just a couple of decades away, population increases, mining continues, not as successful as the late 1800s and the first part of the 20th century, but then World War II had another impact on Victor's population. Another of Victor, Colorado's most famous residents, the legendary 20th century boxer Jack Dempsey, or as he was known around this place, though not politically correct, he was known here and across the globe as Kid Blackie. You can imagine the start of his career. He was actually working in the gold mines. His brother had come here in the early part of the 20th century. He started to work as a kid. He was apparently a very good fighter from a very early age. He would go on to become, you could argue, one of the most prolific, biggest names in the sporting world, right alongside Babe Ruth at the time. The referee, Ali Picard, calls Willard and Dempsey from their corner for instruction. Now you can see what a difference there is in their size. Though a great athlete, the bronze challenger seems almost puny next to the giant he's about to fight. I've made my way across this small town that sits on the slope of a couple of different hillsides or small mountains. I was just a half a mile ago, maybe two and a half minutes ago, in front of the Lowell Thomas Museum. And now I'm standing outside the wrought iron gate of the Sunnyside Cemetery. The graves here, you can see off into the distance and probably 300 yards away is an American flag just blowing in the wind. It's a beautiful winter day. The earliest grave markers here date from 1891. And as we've talked about in the show so far here from Victor, Colorado, in Teller County, once World War I started, so many of these miners left to join the service. And the same thing as we've indicated for World War II. In this cemetery, there are veterans and soldiers from five different wars that are buried here. Think about that. This tiny place in the middle of nowhere, gold mining country, five different wars, veterans and soldiers laid to rest here. Just within the first 50 yards or so of coming into the Sunnyside Cemetery here in Victor, it's 
incredibly poignant and they're so simple. They are metal poles that are painted, well, as I look at them from the bottom to the top, white, blue, white, and red. And these indicate grave sites that belong to our World War I and World War II veterans. As I continue to go off to now my left toward the west, I look at one of the oldest looking grave markers here, belonging to Colorado native Charles G. Neville, a private in the 2nd Army Artillery. Next to him, Emmons Henry Boddicker from Wisconsin, a private in the United States Army in World War I, born in 1889. Continuing to walk up in the snow, it's about 15 degrees, just an absolutely gorgeous winter afternoon. Not a cloud in the sky, the deep Colorado blue that we all love. It's easy to get out of breath at about 10,000 feet. Off to my left now in front of me, Claude S. Mills of Ohio, a private in the hospital corps, born in 1869. He died July 16th of 1948. And finally, as I look off and see the modern day mining, and you can see the tiered levels of what still goes on here, the grave marker of Benjamin L. Knickerbocker, private first class in the second Colorado, World War I, veteran here at the Sunnyside Cemetery in Victor. And with no disrespect at all, some of our veterans, Without gloves on, I've wiped the snow off of their head markers, their grave markers. And though my hands are cold, I've said a prayer for each and every one, taken off my hat, and thanked them for their service. Jerry R. Hanley, Private First Class, United States Army, in World War II. For such a small Colorado town and a small cemetery, just absolutely amazing that the first 50 yards, you can see how so many veterans from this area served, as the cemetery says in its literature, veterans from five different wars buried here. I'm Stephen Tubbs in Victor, Colorado, as we continue the first edition of the 2019 season here on the American Veterans Show, 710 KNUS. If you miss an episode, as always, 710KNUS.com slash Stephen is a link to the American Veterans Show or simply AmericanVeteranShow.com. We have not hit season three yet. This is our first edition of 2019. We will begin season three next month. When we come back... It is going to be a busy, busy first quarter for the president, the defense secretary-to-be, as well as the Defense Department. We'll talk all about that and get you caught up on what you've missed maybe the last couple of weeks military-wise as we continue. From Victor, Colorado, I'm Stephen Tubbs. This is the American Veteran Show, AmericanVeteranShow.com. Welcome back to the American Veteran Show. I'm Stephen Tubbs here on 710 KNUS, the American Veteran Show, proudly presented by our friends at Boson Law, bosonlaw.com. For more on what they can do for you as a veteran in the legal circles, 303-999-9999. 
Coming up day after tomorrow, Governor-elect Jared Polis will be sworn in on the west steps of the state capitol. Outgoing Governor John Hickenlooper, in one of his final acts as the leader of Colorado's National Guard, sent this message to the citizen soldiers of the Centennial State. Hi, it's been my personal honor to work alongside the Colorado Department of Military and Veterans Affairs throughout my last eight years as governor. On behalf of myself, the state of Colorado, and the nation, I want to thank all of you for your courageous dedication. This department has protected Colorado in our greatest times of need. It's impossible to express the true value of all of DMVA's achievements in just this brief video. Over the course of our administration, the Division of Civil Air Patrol has helped search for more than 100 missing people, an aircraft in the Rocky Mountain region, and established aerial fire watch in numerous Colorado counties. Congratulations on winning the Cyber Patriot National Youth Cyber Defense Competition, not once, but twice. Those of you in the Colorado National Guard provided critical assistance during some of the largest natural disasters to impact our state in decades, including more than 18 wildfires, two floods, and two winter storms, and the first ever state emergency declared for a cybersecurity incident in Colorado's history. Your partnership with Colorado agencies during training exercises is stellar, and I was especially impressed with the support you provided Colorado's Secretary of State offering cyber defense capabilities on four election days. You even diversified the force through key appointments, and by ensuring that a Colorado Army National Guard infantry unit was the first in the nation to have female soldiers in its ranks. You promote stability, security, and capacity at home and around the world. And finally, I'm proud of your work to stand up the largest Air National Guard space group in the nation, continuing Colorado's long and deep connection to our nation's military space efforts. A pivotal part of Colorado's connection to our military hinges on our dedication to our veterans through the Division of Veterans Affairs. Over the course of the administration, the DVA has assisted more than 200,000 Colorado veterans file claims for the benefits they've earned and deserve, representing about half of the current population of veterans in Colorado. You also broke ground on the Western Region One Source in Grand Junction, Colorado, which will help serve the needs of more than 40,000 Colorado service members, veterans, and their families who live in 24 counties along the Western Slope. In honoring, in honoring the values of trust, teamwork, and cooperation, the tireless work of the DMVA has helped to keep Colorado and its protectors safe. So again, I thank you for working with me over the years to strengthen our great state, and as we move on, let us always continue to protect the Colorado way of life. That's outgoing Governor John Hickenlooper. Some big news out of the Marine Corps. Starting yesterday at Paris Island, South Carolina, they began a gender-integrated battalion boot camp for the first time ever. Female and male platoons training together. The training cycle yesterday started with one female platoon and five male platoons, a first in the storied history of the United States Marine Corps. From a 2016 Marine Corps training video.
That from a 2016 Marine Corps training video. U.S. officials feel a drone strike New Year's Day killed one of the terrorists behind the bombing of the USS Cole in Yemen back in 2000. 17 Americans died October 12, 2000. They think that they hit Jamil Mohammed al al Budawi. He escaped prison in 2003, was captured, then escaped again in February 2006. Al-Badawi had been on the FBI's most wanted terrorist list since. The bad guy was convicted of plotting, preparing, and helping carry out the attack on the USS Cole. As we continue, a special event honoring the 10th Mountain Division this past week in Vail. It was the first of what will no doubt become a tradition. This report from CBS4 in Denver. Beautiful new tradition tonight, a parade to honor a rich military history that was born right here in Colorado. We sent Jeff Todd up to the high country for this colorful evening. The Vail Valley has always had a close relationship with the 10th Mountain Division and the ski troopers who trained in this area during World War II. In fact, Vail Ski Resort was founded by two veterans of the 10th Mountain Division. Tonight, a parade to honor that legacy. I talked to young people about Camp Hill about serving in the 10th Mountain Division and what that was like, the training and everything, and they love to hear that. Sandy Treat can often be found around this exhibit at the Colorado Snow Sports Museum talking about his time in the Army. There's a lot to learn because most of us were pretty young. An elite skier in college, he became part of the 10th Mountain Division. They said, would you be a, an instructor? And I was a young kid, and I said, sure. I'll do it. He first came to Camp Hale near Leadville in 1942. Next week, he turns 96 years old and spends a lot of his time talking about the 10th. It's here right in where it started. You know, this was the first place of it. Tonight, he was the Grand Marshal of the parade honoring the 10th. Skiers came down the mountain with torches in hand, dressed in replica uniforms from World War II. This is what the origin of the Colorado ski industry looked like 75 years ago. The procession continued through Vail Village, a new tradition. And by the size of the crowd, a sign people want to learn the history and thank the vets of the 10th. It means a lot. I hope I can do it this morning. I'm still... Still around. These legacy parades are going to be on Fridays. There's another one in two weeks, and then there's one planned for February and one in March. We've got the specific dates on CBSDenver.com. In Vail, Jeff Todd covering Colorado first. That from CBS4 in Vail. And finally, the nation's oldest World War II veteran, also believed to be the country's oldest living man, passed away over the holidays. Richard Overton was 112 years old. The Austin, Texas native was in the Pacific Theater just after Pearl Harbor. He served in a segregated Army Engineer Aviation Battalion. Mr. Overton said his secret to living so long was smoking cigars and drinking whiskey, which he did almost up to his passing right before New Year's. A reminder to follow us on our social media pages on Facebook and Twitter and at our website, AmericanVeteranShow.com. You can hear past episodes, give us some feedback, and send us your story ideas as well, whether it's an event, a group, or an individual veteran here along the front range that you think we should feature. Again, contact info can be easily found at AmericanVeteranShow.com. When we come back, as the government shutdown continues, perhaps no surprise, A lot of negative things are being said about the commander-in-chief. 
CBS News recently went into whether or not President Trump could have served in Vietnam, but instead received some sort of special favor. The New York Times investigation has been much ballyhooed. We'll get you up to speed on the story coming up. I'm Stephen Tubbs. This is the American Veteran Show, AmericanVeteranShow.com. Welcome back to the American Veteran Show. We continue now with Stephen Tubbs. Welcome back to the program. Thank you and Happy New Year to you. Maybe you were lucky enough over the break to see a special showing of a new documentary film put together by Academy Award winning director Peter Jackson. It's called They Shall Not Grow Old. It is incredible. It's century-old film footage from the Imperial War Museum housed in London. Before this project, which did take four years to complete, the film had simply lived in the vaults of the museum that, in fact, we profiled in Season 1 on The American Veteran Show. From the Daily Mail and the BBC, here's more on the Peter Jackson documentary, They Shall Not Grow Old. That's how the original film came to us. That's how it is in the Imperial War Museum vaults. You know, the pan, pan around and... And that's the original speed to, to the Javis. That's frame for frame, yeah. Yeah, that's how it's been sitting in the vaults for a hundred years. Yeah, that'd be a little bit more yellow. It would be a little bit more like this colour. Yeah. To memorialise these soldiers a hundred years later is to try to bring some of their humanity back into the world again. Stop them being a a black and white cliche because they, they didn't see that war in black and white they, they did not experience this war in black and white they experienced the war in, in full living color so why shouldn't we now with the technology we have turn it from a black and white war back into a color war again When you look at the old film and you say, okay, we're going to restore this, what it is, it's not one thing, it's actually multiple different things. Because, you know, when you think about it, you've got uh, one of the, the most you know, obvious one is the speed of the film, the jerkiness, you know, you've got just sort of, sort of, you know, it's some sped up. It's really important that we find the correct speed. You know when you've got it on footage that um, where people are marching because they only walk naturally at a certain speed. Some of it is badly damaged, you know, it's just um, and, uh, too far gone. But some of it's very beautiful too. In 1915, 16, 17, there was a cameraman and the speed of the film was dictated by how fast he wound that um, handle. So it varies and it varies from shot to shot. So the same cameraman could be filming something here and then he shifts, shifts his camera and suddenly he's excited or something. And he's filming something there. And, and so so within, within these rolls of film, it's every shot. Every shot has to be individually analysed. And, and when I say analysed, sounds too pompous. What you do is you just take a stab at slowing it down and you look at it and think, oh, no, it's a bit too fast. It's just, it's, we've just, you, know, you say, OK, this, we think this is about 14 frames a second. So you slow it down so that at you know, 24 it looks normal. You, it's just a, a you trial and error, shot by shot. Let's have a look at this. That guy's got a very... In fact, you can see the bullet hole in his boot. See, this is sort of... Let's go backwards. See how you've got the limping German guy here? You know, the guy with the bandage on his arm. If you look down at uh, the bottom of his boot, you can see the bullet hole in it. Just, you can see a black... That's where the bullet's gone through his ankle. It's the sort of detail that you literally just cannot see in the original footage, that, that type of 
Well, you should. I think with every project, we start off with a vision. And in this case, we have Peter Jackson's vision, who is obviously an enormous fan of anything World War I related. By being here in this room, we have access to historians. We have access to uh, real um, um, uniforms that were worn um, during those times, all the accessories that they used. And what that does is it raises the bar and uh, allows us to strive for something that uh, maybe has not been achieved before because ultimately this is going back to Peter and historical accuracy for him is, is, is extremely important. One of the things about colorization in the past is technically it's not been possible to do it well so it's been kind of brushed across with a color wash which is you know sort of not accurately thinking about the color of the flowers you just get a kind of pinky tone or a reddy tone or a blue tone and also it was based on footage that was unrestored so you get the combination of the grainy image and then the odd color uh, we're just recording all the cannons and bits and pieces uh, for some and um just wanted to get the cannon breaches and sort of loading shells where we could and just get in the action of the cannons. Fortunately, we have a treasure trove of uh, authenticity in this uh, shed over here, so uh, it's uh, sound gold. <laughs> it wasn't a silent war, it was a war of sound. They talked and made noises just like we do, and yet, you know, so it, it can't be silent. So that's our concept with the sound part of this, is we're going to take our very highly enhanced footage and we're going to lay a, a, an absolutely detailed soundtrack with it. That's really good. I like that. The thing that struck me most is the sound effects, because of course this is all silent film. So the sound of the guns, the horses on the road, you know, the sound of the, um, the, the, sound of the trains, everything is in there and it made it incredibly real. They didn't have any sound recording, but what we did is we got lip, lipo readers, we got forensic lip, lip readers, who there are professional people, you know, especially for like police work for security camera footage, which is silent and there's people talking and, they, and there's forensic lip, lip readers that the police get to sort of try to figure out what they're saying and stuff. Um, so there's actually quite clever people who can look at, look at lips moving and actually figure out. So we had um, a couple of those people looking at the silent footage and telling us, oh, well, this guy's saying that and this guy's saying that. And then we got actors to, to do those lines. Well, the, the, the big job is the restoring the black and white to black and white. It's that, you know, you know, to get from, from bad black and white to good black and white is actually where most of the, of the work is. Um, and, and you've got to do a, it's a multifaceted thing. It's, it's, it's sharpening, it's getting rid of scratches, getting rid of grain, changing the speed, getting rid of, um, splices. Sometimes you lose three or four frames in a splice. You've got to then have the computer create those, those, those three or four frames. What's actually pretty amazing now is that, a computer, because it was also changing the speed. So imagine, you know, we're say, say that, you know, everything's being screened at 24 frames, but some of the stuff was shot at 14, 15, 16 frames, 10 frames, and so you're now asking the computer to create the extra frames in between the ones that are there. 
um, which is about I mean it amazed me how well it can actually do it now you know you can actually have a you can if you to the computer this is for 15 frames a second but we want it to be 24 the computer without you just press a button you don't actually it's no no it's no human involvement the computer will actually generate it'll take the frame before the frame after and it'll generate these frames that don't exist with the, with with the original material and create its own frames and it comes it's incredible the, the results that you get and then the colorization is there's nothing difficult about the colorization but it's just very labor intensive it's just you know the better you know, the more you spend on it more time you spend on it the better you get that's really just a simple thing with with with, um, with the color work because the war was a color war you know that was what, the purpose of what we were doing was to try to to make a film where you're listening to the people that were there and you're seeing it as they saw it they saw it in color not, not in black and white obviously but you see what also happened in the first world war is the is the is they didn't allow any soldier any 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 colored colored person was not allowed to fight if you can believe that is that they they didn't want they didn't want um to be in a, in a, in a blunt way they didn't want brown people shooting white white men they didn't think at that particular point in time that was a very good look so all of these soldiers all the, all the south african west indian soldiers the, Ma the maoris from the, from new zealand they were all re relegated to digging trenches or, or cutting down trees doing doing lumber work um uh, just l lugging stuff around they, they weren't actually they weren't given guns they, they weren't i mean the indian soldiers were the uh, some some of the indians fought the sikhs and the gurkhas fought yeah well, it was sort of, it's, it's, I mean, I, it, it, it did happen, uh, you know, not just in, in, in um, the British Army, but it was one of the shames of that war is that they let kids fight. I mean, I know it, in Gallipoli, because I go to the Gallipoli a lot, the youngest um, grave at Gallipoli is a 14-year-old, and he's an Australian kid. Um, they just turn a blind eye. Uh, in, in, in Britain, it was, the age limit was 19, and New Zealand, it was 21. Um, I think Australia was 20, but they, they, you know, they, they let 14 and 15-year-old kids, they, they just turned a blind eye, which is a, not a very good thing. Director Peter Jackson, his documentary, They Shall Not Grow Old, bringing to life silent film footage of the Great War, World War One. I'm Stephen Tubbs. This is the American Veteran Show, presented by our friends at Boson Law, bosonlaw.com, 303-999-9999, helping veterans with their legal issues. More when we return. This is the American Veteran Show, AmericanVeteranShow.com. Now, back to the American Veteran Show. Here's Stephen Tubbs. Welcome back to the final segment of our first program here in 2019. Thank you so much for making us a part of your weekend or whenever you listen online to one of our show's podcasts. This will be a big, big year for World War II anniversaries. Of course, coming up this June will mark the 75th anniversary of D-Day, June 6, 1944. We'll have extensive coverage of that as we get closer to that historic date. Then late this year will mark the 75th anniversary of the Battle of the Bulge. And 2019 also marks 75 years since the two men that we featured in our documentary film 25 Steps were shot down and taken to Stalag Luft One, a German prisoner of war camp in Barth, Germany. This is Peter Coyote. 73 years after they were held in Stalag Luft One, two Colorado World War II veterans are reunited. Their story of capture, starvation, survival, and liberation is remarkable. I was a prisoner of war for nine, nine and a half months, or it was nine months plus a few days. 
The reunion will leave you breathless. 25 Steps, a Mountain Time Media Production, a Stefan Tubbs film. That from 25 Steps. As we conclude, as mentioned in our last segment, there's been a lot of negative talk lately about whether President Donald Trump avoided service in Vietnam simply due to a special favor that his father received. It's been extremely controversial. There's no hard proof anywhere. And the man who apparently did the favor is already in his grave. Combine that with the fact the investigation was conducted by the <clears throat> New York Times, notorious for its disdain of this president, and you get a recipe for, well, some would say disaster, others certainly would say controversy. This from our partners at CBS News this past week. Set the stage for us, though. You know, who was Donald Trump at this time? Had he graduated from, from uh, you know, military college? Was he likely to go to Vietnam? Was he a candidate? Yeah, so this Not is military 50 college, years sorry, ago. Military high school. High school. Military Valley high Forge, school. Yeah. Yeah. Military high school. Yeah. He was, fre- it was 1968. He was fresh out of uh, University of Pennsylvania uh, with the Wharton program. Um, and here he is. It's, you know, the, the, a big point in the Vietnam uh, War. And uh, he was, you know, that summer after graduation, he was declared available for service, you know, called to get his exam done. And at that point, what the, what the records show and what the history shows is, is that he was ultimately given a medical exemption, a temporary medical exemption. And um, that's where my reporting kind of picked up, was trying to sort of delve into the history of that. So l- let me just um, read what the campaign said when the president was then candidate Trump about those bone spurs. It said this, while attending the University of Pennsylvania's prestigious Wharton School of Finance, Mr. Trump received a minor medical deferment for bone spurs on both heels of his feet. The medical deferment was expected to be short term, and he was therefore entered in the military draft lottery where he received an extremely high number, 356 out of 365. What's your takeaway from that statement? Yeah, well, I think that we've, you know, in the time since that statement and, and around that time, we've been able to fill in some of the historical blanks there. I mean, w- one key point is, is that the medical um, exemption was actually, you know, listed in 1968, the fall of 1968. The lottery didn't begin until the end of 1969. Mm. So there was a period there of over a year where the, you know, regardless of the lottery, there was a medical exemption that was already in place. Um, and there's a lot of factors that that went in, you know, being, you know, he had already had four education deferments during the college years, pl- um, you know, which was which was fairly typical for an undergraduate student during those that time. Um, but then the next, you know, phase got into well, what else is there that you know would would keep somebody out of the war? And one of the things that people looked for were medical exemptions. So you said it was fairly typical to get uh, an exemption for being in college. How typical is something like this? It's a, a, um, a sort of low-grade medical exemption. I mean, certainly medical exemptions were, were a, uh, you know, were a big part of the picture for people in this era. People who, you know, if you had a medical issue um, of varying degrees, they could, they could lead to exceptions from, you know, during Vietnam, from service. And um, there were plenty of examples of people. There's been, you know, uh, you know plenty of uh, people who have gone through that, you know, down that path, um, including prominent people, politicians and others. And, you know, for, for somebody who's, you know, a president or running for president, public office, these service records always tend to be, uh, especially for, for men of the Vietnam era, uh, something that we look at. You know, the president also said in an interview with ABC News uh, that uh, he had this minor, minor medical deferment uh, for feet, for, I'm quoting him here, for a bone spur of the foot. I was fortunate in a sense because I was not a believer in the Vietnam War. What did you uncover in terms of how he was able to get this medical deferment uh, for those bone spurs? Well, that's what we've sort of focused on here, was trying to, 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 
you know, get a little bit deeper into that history. And, you know, I had written about this a couple of years ago during the campaign. Um, and he had told me during an interview then that he had gotten a letter, a very solid letter that he was, um, that he had presented to the, to the draft officials at his, as, at his exam. And, um, you know, what we learned here was, was the more about, you know, the, the doctor and the role behind it, you know, from, from this story, this family story in the Bronstein family um, about, you know, a tip that had come through uh, for me recently, you know, led me to the Bronsteins and to their story about what their father had told them over the years about, you know, his uh, being a tenant for Fred Trump as uh, his held his office at, in a building owned by Fred Trump and how he had provided this essentially as a, as a favor to Fred Trump. So that's what the Bronstein that's family really Dr. Bronstein is. Yeah. Passed, Dr. Bronstein has passed away. So you are relying yes. on the stories from his family members. Were you able to verify that beyond what his family members said he said to them? Yeah, and you know, so the, the story in, in you know, large part is based on the accounts of two the two adult daughters of Dr. Bronstein. Dr. Bronstein uh, passed away in 2007, and you know both of his daughters had, had recollections of these discussions and sort of this idea of this family lore over the years of, of their father talking about you know what he had done um, you know in terms of the help that he provided for this famous person for uh, for you know for, for a young Donald Trump at the time and for his father. Um, you know there was not documentation to back up. This is 50 years ago. A lot of the records that you know relate to the uh, you know, to the Vietnam era and the medical exams, you know, are, are no longer. And so, the, you know, the account was, was based on those two. It's a, uh, you know, a, 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 a you know, possible explanation for, for what took place. Mm. Right, because in your piece, you talk about the fact that uh, Dr. Larry Bronstein, and as you pointed out, he died in 2007. Um, his daughter says she knows that or she felt that it was a favor to the president's father, Fred Trump, to provide this letter, but it's, you haven't been able to uncover the documentation that actually suggests that, but it could have been a conversation that uh, Fred Trump had, Fred Trump Sr. had with the doctor because he was the landlord of that building. Yeah, there's still quite a few unknowns here. I mean, it, you know, and, and it's one of those things where as you sort of trace back in 50 years of history, um, you know, there are still some unknowns, and, and I think in the piece we make that clear. Um, but, yeah, there's, a, you know, certainly a relationship uh, between Fred Trump and, and Larry Bron Dr. Larry Bronstein. Uh, Larry Bronstein, you know, rented his office there for decades from the Trumps. And essentially what, what the uh, Bronstein's daughters told me was is that he got, um, you know, an attentive landlord out of this. He was able to get somebody that, you know, if there was a problem in the building, if there was something that he needed, uh, the Trumps took care of it. And um, there was, a, you know, another podiatrist who had gotten to know Dr. Bronstein recounted a story of, of other, you know, help with, with rent and things like that, you know, that would come up over the years with trying to, you know, back off rent increases and things of that nature. So, you know, it was one of those things where it was a, a landlord-tenant relationship and, you know, and this, this came about, in, you know, in, in the 1960s. Hey, you know, Steve, during the campaign, uh, when this topic came up, there were a lot of sort of jokes or memes being cracked about how the president's such an avid golfer and what happened to his bone spurs if he has them because he seems to be able to walk a lot. Um, you know, has he been inconsistent with his explanation? There's been a sort of a, you know, a, a various explanations that he's sort of given over the years. The, the point about the lottery and, and the high draft lottery number was certainly a, a big point that's come up. He's also, um, you know, discussed the bone spurs, you know, at, at various times, discussed them as being a very minor issue. You know, when you look at him at 22 years old, he was very athletic. He was somebody who, you know, played multiple sports as, as a young man. Um, and so, you know, the history of those bone spurs questions about which foot and things like that, that that's come up and kind of been one of those things that have, that have sort of followed him as part of this story over the last few years. That from our partners at CBS News earlier this week. 
That's all the time for this week's program. Be sure to follow us online at AmericanVeteranShow.com. For executive producer Kirk Widlin, I'm Stephen Tubbs. Have a great first full week of 2019, and we'll talk to you again next weekend. Thanks so much for listening, and remember our troops. The American Veteran Show is a copyrighted production of Mountain Time Media Group, LLC. All rights reserved. The program's executive producer is Kirk Woodland. For more information, visit AmericanVeteranShow.com. Join us next week for another edition of The American Veteran Show. Searching for last-minute gifts? Shop the last-minute deal sale at Virginia ABC and save 20% on select 750-milliliter bottles. That's 20% off gifts for the hard to shop for. 20% off gifts guaranteed to fit. 20% off gifts to celebrate the season. And 20% off a little gift for yourself. Shop the last-minute deal sale at Virginia ABC. In stores and online now through December 21st. Please sip responsibly.